I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 17. Listen to the words of God here. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or in the waters underneath the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquities on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. God, thank you, Doyle. There's certain people that I really like to listen to read scripture. Randy Butler is first, second, and third place for me. Um, I think Doyle just slipped into fourth place. He's got some gravel to his voice, and he's really paces. I like that. Um, okay. Here we are, and we are, we're going to deal with this, this next topic. If, if you recall, I mean, some of you may not have been here for uh, the previous three messages, but we opened this sermon series on biblical love, a biblical understanding of love, um, in part to combat some common cultural understandings of love that have really gotten away from us. And we began this series by looking at love as a manifestation of God's very own character and nature. He is not so big as to be perfectly loving. He is the very genesis of love itself. And then the week after that, Scott Irwin came and he preached and he talked about if God is himself so infinitely loving, the most loving thing that he's done and towards us is the cross. And then last week, Jim began to, to pull apart um, uh, what could be apparently contradictory ideas. Should love be quiet or should it speak? And we worked through what wisdom has to do with sorting through when to speak in love and when to, in love, remain silent. And today, we're not dealing with um, what seem to be polar opposites at various ends of the spectrum. We're actually dealing with two topics that are um, at times completely conflated with one another. We're dealing with two terms as it relates to love that many of us will use interchangeably as virtual synonyms. What we're doing today is we're going to talk about that love is, is not envious. And yet at times it is appropriately jealous. And as I've worked through preparing for this message and kind of sitting with the text, had a number of conversations with a, with a number of, of staff people, a number of just close friends, and it is, by, in, in terms of our modern usage, envy and jealousy are virtually synonymous. And yet, as we go through our material here, as we work from Exodus 20 towards 2 Corinthians, we'll see that it's biblical definitions must govern here. And um, 
It may even make us uncomfortable how the Bible talks about envy versus jealousy. But I thought that this might be a helpful um, little paradigm to, to have in front of us because I think the whole series is following this diagram. And, uh, and, and I think we'll be able to see how this works itself out in this particular uh, uh, concept today. But in our School of Discipleship program, we use these twin triangles as just short little napkin sketches to articulate the gospel and what it has to do with us and what we do in response. And so this is called the covenant triangle. If God is to initiate a covenantal relationship with us through the cross, this is a quick little way, again, on a napkin sketch that you can articulate what's actually taking place. The first is that at the top of the triangle, you have that God is our father. The Bible speaks about him as a father constantly. And he is indeed our father. And when we enter into covenantal relationship with him through Christ's uh, gracious sacrifice on the cross, we are then conferred a new identity. We go from being, um, being in Adam to being in Christ. We go from being made in the image of God that's been broken and marred to now we've been remade in the image of Christ. We've been given a new identity. And then from that identity, obedience flows. Now, the reason that we use this diagram in our school discipleship materials is because we find that oftentimes we're actually trying to do it in reverse. The direction of the arrows matter. But so often we find ourselves obeying in order to be someone worth loving like a father would love a child. And that's the exact antithesis of the gospel. The gospel is that God so loved, and then we were remade, and from that new identity, that new regenerate status and the power of the Spirit in us, we can then obey. And I think that this diagram helps situate how we're talking about love in this series. Because first, we talked about that love comes from God himself and that the most loving thing he can do is to pour out his wrath on Christ on the cross on our behalf. So that's the Father giving us a new identity. That's, that's the grace of the gospel. That's God's mercy towards us. And then, last week when we were talking about whether to be silent or to speak, and this week we're talking about whether to be envious or jealous, we are working out that obedience piece because we've talked about the vertical relationship of love with God and us. And now we're sorting through how to be loving to one another. And today we are going to crack this open with the most obvious statement in the world. Love is not envious. There's no biblical precedent for love to have envy in it. As Doyle read, the 10th commandment, do not cover your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, do not he, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if you're familiar with the structure of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments begin with four commandments that articulate our um, relationship with God. It's the vertical dimension. And then from there, the remaining six talk about our horizontal relationship. So love God, love one another. First four, love God. Last six, love one another. And it's, it finishes with this one. Don't, don't covet. Seems rather self-evident. Famously in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love. I know you guys thought we'd get to 1 Corinthians 13 before the fourth sermon, but we'll get there at sermon number seven. But just quickly, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. 
It's not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Writing to a church that had numerous problems, that really struggled in certain areas to love one another well, Paul reminds them, look, love does not envy. Writing to the church in Philippi, In regards to the preaching of the gospel, Paul says this, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Now, Paul will go on to say that he's not really all that concerned with motivation. However, it is interesting what he compares here. He says, envy and rivalry, preaching that is done from envy and rivalry, it correlates to selfish ambition. But those who preach out of goodwill, he says, they preach out of love. So he's, he's, he's pitting love against envy, goodwill against selfish ambition. Love is, it has no room for envy. Um, one of the, the antidotes to envy is increased gratitude. John Chrysostom was to be a fourth century preacher in modern day Turkey. Uh, Chrysostom means the golden mouth or the golden tongue. He was, he was known to be an incredible speaker that people would come from all over to hear. And he says this about envy. He said, let us be thankful not for our own blessings alone, but also for those of others. In this way, we will be able both to destroy our envy and to rivet our charity. So he says, it's it's not quite enough to just be grateful for the blessings that you've received. He said, you can kill envy if you will find it in you to be grateful for the blessings others have received, be grateful on their behalf. So, I don't think we have to labor too long to establish that love, biblically, has no room for envy. And by and large, in a sense, it also doesn't have room for that much jealousy. I hate to cut off the end of the sermon before we get there, but it also doesn't have a whole lot of room for jealousy. Paul loves to come up with vice lists, lists of sins that he will lump together and then talk about the the destructive nature of these sins. In Galatians 5, he says this, Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy. Outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. Jealousy and envy are on the same list now. Drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Stark words to the Galatians. Jealousy, at least in this context and in this sense, no good. But the more we look to God and the more we look to his very character and his nature, the more we come to the conclusion that love, true godly love, is sometimes jealous. Love is sometimes jealous. Remember how the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20? God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. 
Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's a jealous God. It takes a word from one of Paul's vice lists. But she says, those who are jealous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we turn way back here and in Exodus 20, and frequently in the Old Testament, God describes himself as jealous. So which is it? And what we come to is that we may only have one word, one in Hebrew, one in Greek for jealousy, but we have multiple senses of the word. So envy, never good. Jealousy, mostly not good. Jealousy, sometimes really good. And our job is to look to the Lord, look to his character, and discern how do we understand and emulate the good kind of jealousy without slipping into the prohibited kind of jealousy. Because God right here, he's jealous for his people. He continues that he'll bring the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for their fidelity. Again, this is the the beginning of a list of rules. This is the beginning of God um, demonstrating who he is by giving of the law at Sinai. He's saying, hey, here is who I am. Follow me. I am jealous for you. He's also jealous for himself. Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the law. Shortly thereafter, they're going to have a little problem with a little golden calf. And the Lord is going to have to come in and say, in Exodus 34, because the Lord is jealous for his reputation. You are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God, a stern warning. He is jealous for his people in Exodus 20. He's jealous for himself in Exodus 34. How do we sort out the difference between the good kind of jealousy and the jealousy that looks a lot like envy? Well, a man named Andrew Wilson, he's a British pastor. I thought he put it really well. He said, the difference is stated simply. Jealousy is the desire to keep for yourself what rightfully belongs to you. Envy is the desire to have for yourself what rightfully belongs to another. Envy is when a husband wants to sleep with someone else's wife. Jealousy is when he doesn't want his wife to sleep with somebody else's husband. And what Wilson is is insinuating is that one of these is good and the other is not. So what is it that God is desiring to keep for himself that rightly belongs to him? Well, it's, it's Israel. It's the nation. He's just, this is in the context of he's just redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And he is, they are, they are his prized possession, his prized nation. Like God owns everything that has ever been created. It, it, it all is owned by him, but he loves Israel in a special way. Last week I was at the Christian school. 
um, talking about Christ's ascension. And I was just talking about God's, like Jesus' very special love for his people. And a little boy named Noah, right here in the front, probably first grader, second grader. Noah yells out, God loves everybody. And I said, he does, that's true. He loves the church more. And to know the difference between those is to understand why he's jealous for his people. God would love, like I truly believe he created all things so that his name would be glorified and he would be worshipped and, and so much of his creation has rebelled against him, including most of humanity, but he has this special people for himself and he's jealous for them because they are his. And that's what Wilson's getting at here. So God is jealous for his people, he's jealous for his name and his reputation and when that name and reputation are scorned, his jealousy bursts forth in discipline. In Zechariah chapter 8, this is written well after the, the, the Exodus, well, well after the Exodus. And Israel has, has gotten herself into some trouble over the years. She has been um, judged by the Assyrians, God's judgment by the Assyrian conquest. So she's been judged by Babylonian exile, God's hand in the Babylonian exile. And then this is talking about what he is, what he is about to do. He says, the word of the Lord of armies came. The Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous for Zion. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. And the Bible is full of stories of God both pouring out his wrath on his people and then pouring out his wrath on those who have hurt his people. But nevertheless, it's interesting that we've gone from love being connected to jealousy and now wrath is introduced and it seems like one of these is not like the other. What is wrath? For a few weeks now, I've had a friend who's had opportunity to mention this quote from a German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann. And I find it so fascinating and so timely that I've been introduced to this idea that he says this, the wrath of God is God's wounded love. The wrath of God is God's wounded love. And I've had, again, a number of weeks to reflect on how profound that idea might be. That when God's love is scorned, when his name is mocked by the disobedience and the infidelity of his people, when his jealousy rises up for his people, it often ends in the need for discipline. And before we just hear that and think that that's altogether negative, it might be difficult. That doesn't make it altogether negative because the longer I've thought about this, the longer I've realized that every parent knows exactly what this feels like. You could reword it. The wrath of mine or my wife against our children, it's our wounded love. Like we want what's best for them. And to disobey, to break rules in the home, it's not what's best for them. And so I always find that the disciplinary process it's worse for me than it is for them. I don't want to do it. 
It usually inconveniences me more than it hurts them. So whatever we take away, whatever privileges have to be set aside for now, that is, that is the wounded love of parents trying to fight for that little child that they are deeply jealous for. And it's not a jealousy that's petty. It's a jealousy that loves them so much that we refuse to let them destroy themselves. So we'll cut off deep sinful patterns as early as we can. And that's the kind of picture I see being painted of the Lord throughout the Old Testament as he deals with the nation. He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for his name. His jealousy often manifests in a love that has been scorned and therefore needs to discipline in order to bring back. Okay? Well, if God gets to be jealous like that, how do we do it? That's the part that has been actually really interesting to work through because, quite frankly, anytime you tell me that God is jealous, I'm like, well, he's God. He does everything perfectly well. Of course he's going to do it right. You start to describe human beings as jealous people. It almost always comes across as a negative thing. And yet there are times when in the scriptures we see this horizontal relationship between human beings as actually demanding God, godly jealousy. One example, Song of Solomon. Great love story between Solomon and his bride. This is actually the bride responding. She says, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. And since it's Hebrew poetry, we know that it's going to start to do this parallelism game. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy, which corresponds to love, is as unrelenting as Sheol, which corresponds to death. So here she is, the bride, talking about her groom, is smashing jealousy and love together in a positive sense. Okay. I get the context of a marriage being a place where jealousy can be appropriate. Um, I know we're not supposed to talk like this anymore, but if we're talking about being jealous for that which belongs to you, Rachel is mine. I am hers. Like there's something, there's something very unique about our relationship as a husband and as a wife that jealousy is the appropriate response in certain situations. I'm jealous for her. And it's not just fidelity. I'm jealous for her betterment. I'm jealous for her sanctification. I'm jealous for her spiritual growth and depth. I'm jealous for her health. I'm jealous for all sorts of things for her because those are what's best for her. So I will fight for those things. We do the same thing with kids. But what's fascinating is that in 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, again speaking to a church he loved very much but had a lot of problems, He's jealous for them. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm deeply connected to you as a church 
and, I, and I'm jealous, and you could, almost, you could almost like wrap that in with, I'm zealous for your holiness, for your maturity. I want to pre- present you mature. I don't want to present you as people who still drink milk. I want to present you as people who eat meat. I want you to grow up. I'm jealous for that. That's a good kind of jealousy. That's not petty jealousy. That's deeply involved jealousy. And I think it's because he loves them. You know, this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, in conjunction with virtually all of these that are talking about God's jealousy and what it's good for, and then Paul's jealousy and what he has a deep passion for in the church in Corinth, it tells me, like, I think this is the last nail in the coffin of this very, very prominent idea that to love someone is to accept them as they are. If you love me, you'll just accept me, warts and all. If you love me, you'll accept me and let me be who I am. Biblical love that is jealous for your benefit has no context for that. God doesn't leave us where we are. He transforms our hearts, renews us over the entire duration of our life, sanctification, moving towards glorification. He doesn't leave you and just love you the way you are. Jealousy says, no, I'm going to fight for your good. And it's so common now to talk about love and acceptance as if they're the same thing. Or love and tolerance as if they're the same thing. A jealous biblical love will fight for the benefit of others. So how do we do this well? Now here's some ideas. Don't consider this a, just a real easy checklist, but these are some ideas that we can employ to think through how to love people well, even to the point where jealousy bubbles up. And to do so with wisdom and the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the first thing is that we need to ask in, in, in the relationship, what is our relationship here? For example, Paul has a strong relationship with this church in Corinth. He's jealous for them. He wants what's best for them. We have so many good churches in Stillwater. I'm jealous for us, though. Like, I, I'm sure Eagle Heights can do things great, and I'm sure Grace can do things great, and, and we'll let them worry about them, but I have a deep, deep jealousy for our collective growth and maturity because of the relationship that we have with one another, because of that we are a family committed to one another. A lot of what Doyle was even mentioning about coming here and he's new to this, to this particular fellowship and he feels so warmly welcomed and integrated into the family, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm jealous for Doyle and his wife Kay's growth and maturity and sanctification and holiness. So asking that kind of relationship, I have a very unique relationship with my wife in which jealousy would be appropriate. I have a very unique relationship with my children, with close friends, with extended family, with my family, my spiritual family, and I'm, I'm jealous for us to reap the benefits of following the Lord well. The second thing that you can ask is, is my jealousy, if it starts to rise up, is it the result 
of any relational insecurity in me. For example, my, my relationship with my wife is in very, very secure. I could see her in this lobby talking to any man in this building and never will any jealousy bubble up in me because our relationship is secure. Now, if I saw you at dinner with her, I would maybe think something else. <laughs> but I know many people struggle with a jealousy that goes unfettered and unchecked and can't even handle other relationships. But when our relationships are, are secure, first with God and then with each other, then jealousy should only really pop up when it's appropriate. Because this third thing should govern it all. What leads to their flourishing? I use the example of my kids in obedience, and I'm jealous for them to grow. Because in order to flourish, they need to grow. Like if, I, if, 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 he was, uh, if it was a nutritional problem, in order for him to flourish, he needs to have the, the proper nutrition, so I'm going to be jealous for that. I'm going to fight for that. I, and it's all born of my love for them. Think about those we love who are slowly veering off course in the faith. In Sunday school last week, we had a rather extended conversation on what it means to drift away and how one of the most dangerous things about drifting is you don't really realize it's happening until you're very far off course. But if we would be jealous for one another, appropriately so, we would help one another stay the course. That's the kind of jealousy that I have for us. And I really think it's because I love you and I think that we need to, to do this well together because that's what leads to our flourishing. Next, I can ask, is my relationship with God front and center? This might be a subset of the relational insecurity bullet, but like, is my relationship with the Lord secure? Do I, if, you can think of it like this. It's often been described that if you want to understand idolatry, think of whatever it is that you can no longer live without. If it's anything but God, then you have an idol. Like if you were to suddenly lose something or someone and it's taken away and you just can't go on without that something or someone and it's not God, then that's probably an idol. I need, I need my kind of relationship with the Lord to be that strong so that when appropriate, I can demonstrate a love that manifests in jealousy for the benefit of others, and it never devolves into petty envy. Last, ask the question, what is worth fighting for? I have four kids. The older two have been baptized and truly want to follow the Lord. And I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to inconvenience myself to care for them, to disciple them, to put them in the best possible situation where they can have a lifelong faith that is always growing. And my son's about to turn 10. 
Imagine if, if someone were to say, when he's 18, he will be no more spiritually mature than he is now. I don't think my response or his mother's response would be, ah, oh, that's fine. I mean, he's mostly made it already. I think we'd say, no, this is worth fighting for. We're going to put the appropriate changes in place to fight for him and for his ongoing sanctification. And we're going to do what we can to disciple him in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So when I'm looking at all the relationships that I have, I have, I have again, a spouse, children, family, friends, colleagues, church, brothers and sisters, and I think of all the people I love and the different senses in which I love them, I suddenly become very aware that there is a lot to fight for. There's a lot to fight for. And I think that maybe this will be a more helpful way of stating this principle that we have here. So first of all, this, this, this message was intended to, to kind of separate that love is both jealous and it does not envy. But maybe it would be better stated like this. Love fights for its beloved and it is satisfied with its beloved. It will fight for those I love, for their benefit, for their flourishing, according to the scriptural mandate that we can employ and I'll also be satisfied with where things are now. Holding those two things in tension is going to require a whole lot of wisdom, a whole lot of prayer, and a whole lot of um, trusting the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. But the more I've thought about this, the more I realize as I sit here and look at this communion spread, this cup, this whole time, it's rather shocking how frequently biblical principles as they relate to love connect so well to this meal. If we were talking about love as being sacrificial, I'd be like, yep. If we were talking about love as knowing when to speak and when not to speak, I can think of lots of situations in which Jesus bites his tongue and when he speaks searing words of truth. Yep. And if I think of love as God's jealousy for that which belongs to him and the means by which he will restore that which belongs to him. Yep. We've always been his because he created us. He owns it all. And like Noah mentioned in chapel the other day, God loves everybody. But I also think it's true that he loves the church more because his jealousy produced this. So we remember together the body given for us. And the blood of a jealous God who poured himself out for us. Amen.